With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. I'm still getting used to saying that. I feel like I've, for five years, been talking about the place that uh, used to uh, help me out with the podcast, and I'm still getting used to that The Athletic slogan in uh, connection with this show. But today on the show, I've got a really great guest. I'm really excited. It's Spencer Perlman. Over, uh, You can find his work over at The Stepian. He's also a former draft consultant for the Phoenix Suns. Uh, he also consults now for uh, Seth Cohen's uh, sports agency. They recently signed Isaiah Todd, uh, recently signed Desmond Bain. So uh, Spencer has a real wealth of knowledge, and I think that if you go and read his work at the Stepian, uh, it really is very detailed and very good. So I wanted to have him on the podcast uh, just to kind of have some fun and bounce off of guys because, uh, A, as I've told Spencer before, I am a fan of his work, and I think he does a really great job. And, B, him and I got into a conversation about Killian Hayes and Obi Toppin and a lot of different stuff on Twitter after my mock draft came out on Tuesday. And I just thought it would be great to have him on the podcast and be able to talk through a lot of that stuff. So, Spencer, how are you doing, man? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's nice after listening to you actually being on the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I mean, like I've like I've told you before, like privately, like I'm a I'm a fan of your work. I'm glad that I'm finally getting a chance to have you on so that we can talk about some of the stuff because I do think that you do some of the most detailed work uh, on the internet and you can really uh, dig into the intricacies of prospects uh, similarly uh, in a way to our uh, our friend Colswicker. That's very high praise. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, no, don't don't tell Cole I praised him. We're uh, we're not allowed to not allowed to do that on this podcast. He left us. Um, Understood. So let's just kind of dive in to what is your process whenever uh, going about evaluating prospects and finding prospects that you think are interesting. And, and we'll do that before we get into some specific names because I think that. There are some really interesting names that you're higher on than I am, that you're lower on than I am, uh, that we can really just kind of go back and forth on. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I obviously watch a lot of film. Um, that's always where it starts. Uh, you know, synergy, um, games, instat, you know, whatever I can find, it's always, it's always just kind of where it begins. Um, in each game, I'm always taking notes on what's happening, um, you know, things that pop in both good and bad ways. Um, you know, you know, I, I went to law school, I'm very detail oriented, so I like keeping detailed notes. Um, and then, you know, I use Bart Torvik, um, for, you know, some stats and trying to get some indicators because, you know, like 2% seal percentage is always good and trying to find filters for, um, for, you know, specific archetypes, archetypes, um, you know, I'll go there. And then when I'm actually compiling the reports, I have my notes, um, I have, you know, all the websites up that I need and, I download all the clips and I watch each clip, you know, a few times. Um, and, and while I'm watching the clips, I note, make notes on things. So that's, you know, how I'm able to get a good feel of someone's footwork, um, their hip mobility and stuff like that. Um, and then just kind of start word vomiting everything. And that's how I end up with 6,000 words in a player that few people care about. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty funny. The word vomit strategy is definitely one that I also employ. Uh, as people I am sure who read my work uh, would tell you often to my detriment uh, in terms of word vomiting. So I'm right there with you in terms of detail. It's just like getting all of this stuff out of your head. I think sometimes the best way to do it is the word vomit and, and just kind of go from there. Um, in regard to what you think is important now, I think that you would agree with me that it all is very dependent uh, in terms of what position you're going to play specifically on defense. Uh, I mean, what are, what are some of the most important skills that you look for in terms of the modern game that are, that are indicators for you that a player is going to have success? Um, 
I mean, the first thing I always look for is IQ. Uh, it's something that I always feel translates, and you can be, you know, below average athlete, but if you're really smart and if you just understand where to be on both sides of the ball, if you make quick reads, chances are you'll find a place in the league. Um, and then you know, that, I guess that kind of sets the, you know, the bottom part of it. And then from there, you just kind of build on it and you look at the specific skill. So if you're looking for someone uh, to, you know, to be an engine, you're going to want, um, you know, downhill ability. You're going to want ways to create advantages, whether it's off the dribble, uh, speed, um, you know, handle, like whatever, whatever you're kind of looking for. Um, for combo guards, you want someone who can, you know, make quick swing passes, maybe a take off the pick and roll when the defense is in motion. Um, you know, all three and D players are pretty, pretty self-explanatory, except like I personally like having guys who, when chased off the line, they have a, a, like a once two dribble pull up or they feel comfortable attacking the rim. Um, and then specifically for the modern game, you need bigs who pretty much are, like they either need to be elite rim runners, they need to be able to space the floor, or they need to be able to pass. Yeah. Um, the whole idea of, you know, you have the back-to-the-basket big and, you know, lumbering bigs who can't defend in space or, you know, can't protect the rim, it, they don't have value or, you know, at least positive value for teams. So those are the kinds of players that I try to stay away from or I would stay away from if I were with a team. Um, but, you know, like you watch the NBA games, you you figure out where the person they're scouting could potentially fit in, and you uh, you know you have your check marks, um, the box that you're supposed to check off for that specific role, and if they have it, great. If they don't, you know, crap. <laughs> right. Um, we're gonna have an interesting discussion, I think, about one guy as well uh, in this class, and maybe maybe it's a good way to kind of jump into the conversation we're gonna have. I would imagine that you're lower on Isaiah Stewart than I am, right? Yeah, <laughs> him and uh, him and Vernon Carey. Um, I mean, I I guess you know with Stewart at least he, he, he's relentless on the offensive glass. Um, he plays you know with energy and you love that, but he he doesn't really protect the rim very well. Um, I yeah. think he will shoot, um, and I have issues like you know the screening stuff. Like him and Vernon Carey both said ghost screens, uh, yeah. which just always pisses me off. Um, but yeah, Stewart, Eric, those guys, are not particular, and even you know someone like Aturu, who I know some guys are high on. Um, I you know maybe late first round pick, but I've seen some people on Twitter get mad at me for saying I wouldn't take him in the top ten, and I don't understand that. <laughs> that you wouldn't take Daniel Aturu in the top ten? Yep. Some someone had him incredibly high. And, yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah. Um, Daniel Aturu is not. I'm, I'm intrigued, yeah. but that's not a top ten pick. Um, so with Isaiah, I think the big key is believing in the shooting. If you think he is going to shoot, he becomes a lot more interesting as a modern-day center to me. Uh, obviously, the defensive translation is going to be very interesting, and he's going to have to really work on his ability to actually just consistently contest at the basket. Like, I'm sure that you've seen this, too. Like, with Isaiah, there were just a couple too many times where I feel like he didn't put his hands up to contest yeah. uh, at the basket. And this stuff shows up on tape, but I also tend to buy into the background stuff on Isaiah a little bit more maybe than you do. Uh, Isaiah is known as like a, you know, across the board, any source you talk to says elite level kid. If you watch him in interviews, you can see that too. Just like super elite level kid, uh, intelligent kid, you know, incredible motor on the court. I think that if you tell him, Isaiah, we need you to set good screens. We need you to play in a drop coverage scheme, wall off the paint, and then go up with verticality using your length and your seven foot four wingspan. I think he's going to be able to do that. Like I think that you know it's going to be a similar conversation whenever we talk about like Killian Hayes. It's like we're projecting things upon players that they haven't necessarily done yet situationally, but. Mm-hmm. You know, in the case of Isaiah, I think that it just depends on where you are projection-wise in terms of where his skill set is. Because right now, what he showed at Washington this year, I would agree with you. Like, I actually do have very real uh, concerns about what that particular player would look like in today's NBA. I just kind of think that there is actual room for more uh, from Mm -hmm. Isaiah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, the shooting I buy – he shot, you know, almost 80% from the free throw line this year. On the threes he took, the form was not bad at all. Like, you know, it was a smooth release. He looked comfortable taking it, even if he took, you know, 20 of them this year, 25. Um, 
the shot I bought and like with respect to um you know the intel like same like I completely agree with that um but yeah everything that I've heard is that he's you know an insanely hard worker and you can kind of tell you know with his motor on the offense last um I guess you know with the screening part like if you if you want to can if someone has a touch screen that's you know it's an issue um maybe not like a big issue because if you do it you do it but you know something as simple as that I feel like you really shouldn't have to be told to do it it's something like for your role and the role you've been playing for you know x many years you should already have that ingrained inside of you it's a good question I actually don't know if I agree with that uh a lot of what Isaiah has been asked to do over the course of his career is post, not necessarily screen. And I would actually think that as he continues to get more experience as a screener, like even at Washington this year, uh, I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. I'll pull them up as we're talking. But I would imagine that uh, something like 40 to 45% of his possessions were in the post, which is just an incredibly high number, right? So I actually kind of think that you're going to be able to teach him how to screen and what he needs to do. Actually, 48% of his possessions were in the post. 15% of his possessions um, were offensive rebounds and 9% were in transition. So you're talking about, uh, you know, basically three quarters of his possessions being post-ups or just like kind of hustle plays. And then if you add cuts as well, um, you know, you're talking about uh, those often end up being dump off passes to a guy in the dunker spot uh, on synergy. That's just kind of how they classify them because there's not really a great way to do it. Um, only 7% of his possessions were in the role this season. Uh, he only did it basically once a game, which I think is kind of crazy to me. I guess he was very efficient in the post, but you know, for, for someone that is this big and has this kind of catch radius. Uh, I guess that they just didn't have guards to really play and pick and roll now thinking about it contextually. But in the case of Isaiah, I think he just doesn't have a ton of experience uh, out there as a pick and roll guy. And I think that as you give him that experience, his footwork's going to improve. Uh, he's going to be able to get to the point where he's like a legit pick and pop weapon. And uh, you're going to use him as a trailer, I think, uh, shooting three pointers as well. I, I think that there is like a very real, case for him to becoming a useful player offensively, even though I do have one fairly significant concern that we haven't talked about yet. I'm assuming that's the passing or yeah, the passing lack of, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it was either that or, you know, him not being able to jump over a textbook. Yeah. Him not being able to jump over a textbook does concern me. I wonder if there's something that like teams can do with his frame. Uh, Like, I wonder if he is, just basically over the course of his life been lifting like too much upper body and can maybe, you know, reproportion his frame a little bit uh, in a way that would give him a little bit more explosiveness. But, you know, at the end of the day right now, I think that you basically have to project that he's not going to be some crazy high level athlete, right? He's going to have to become like a legit threat from the outside um, because he's not going to be able to, you know, really shrink the court with some, uh, with the spacing. It's going to have to be from from. Th- I was going to say, if you think you know, if he's going to be you know a positive on offense, um, but in this you know this would drag back into the Obi conversation from a few days ago. Where would you select that in the first round? Because like I feel like taking him in the le- like you know bottom third of the first round, I'm, I'm fine with you know last six some picks, I'm fine with six picks, whatever. Um, before then, just because of you know the replacement value of the center and how quote-unquote easy it is to find someone who could potentially do what he does or can do, you know, if he does improve, I wouldn't really go above above the end of the first. Yeah, and I, like, I honestly think that's a reasonable take on Isaiah, to be honest. Like, I, I would not, um, like, I would take him higher, but I, I'm not going to sit here and, like, parse through it, you know? Like, I, I don't think that's, yeah. like, a wild a wild opinion to think that, like, because of the replacement values of centers, uh, you don't really have an interest in taking them. Uh, it's just in this draft, like, I, I don't get real excited by many people, <laughs> unfortunately. Don't say. Um, but one guy I am excited about is Obi Toppin. I'm glad that you brought him up. So I am a lot higher on Obi Toppin than you are because of basically he can do everything on offense. Like there's not really a thing that he doesn't do well out of screen and roll. He is a great pop threat because I think he actually is like a 39% three-point shooter or so. Maybe once he moves back to the NBA line, it'll be more like 35-36. I think he actually can pass. Uh, He was a better passer this year out of the post than he was on the move. But 
I don't think we've seen much from him uh, thus far to say that he can't pass on the move either, given the fact that he does actually see the court well and does have real vision that he's displayed uh, in different areas of the court. Obviously, he is just an absolutely elite level finisher. I don't really think that there's uh, a case to say otherwise, given his explosive leaping ability. Um I kind of think that this guy is just an incredible offensive move piece uh, across Mm -hmm. the entire court in today's NBA that you're going to be able to play at the four or the five in the NBA. And when you play him at the five, I mean, he's going to create some very, very real mismatch nightmare scenarios. Yeah. um, So, you know, starting from the, I guess the beginning, um, I completely agree. I think he can do everything that you're going to want well, after the shooting. I think he's going to be able to do everything you're going to want, you know, your, your bigs to do out of the pick and roll. Yep. Um, he's absolutely a fantastic post-up passer. I actually think he's a really good passer in the move also. Um, mm-hmm. He had some awesome flashes, you know, off the short roll, um, taking one or two dribbles and then hitting, you know, a guy in the corner or drop off. Um, I think like the passing out of the pick and roll is definitely there also. Um the finishing, that's definitely there. My issues with him is that I don't think he'll become a high enough volume shooter from three to really drag the defense out. Um, I guess that's my first, you know, issue, but that's not my big, you know, like it's not my biggest issue. My biggest issue would be the defense. And I think that with how bad of a defense defender I think he is currently and what he projects to be at the next level, um, he's going to have to be like a special, special offensive player to, you know, overcome the potential negatives on defense. So let's talk about the, I want to talk about the uh, shooting first, because in general, I don't think that the best use of his skills, maybe is the way to put it offensively is to pop him, right? Like you're almost always going to try and, you know, roll him to the basket. Like it, Similarly to Obi Toppin, John Collins knocked down 40% of his threes this year. John Collins knocked down that high number in part because teams, I don't want to say they didn't guard him out there, but he just didn't necessarily get the attention out there that uh, you would expect from like a true floor spacer. Now, one thing that I think Obi can do and one thing that I think John Collins did really well this year was if you do come out on him really heavy, uh, he is just going to blow by you attacking a closeout. And I feel the same way about Obi. Like I think Obi can just straight up blow by guys and his body control. Once he gets in tight is so good with the mix of like backspins and uh, the ability to kind of elevate over the top of guys. Once he does that, it's that mix of body control and explosiveness that I think is legitimately uh, kind of a special mix for a guy that is six foot nine uh, and can play the four and the five in the NBA. Uh, If he does get to the point where he's knocking down 38% of his threes on four three-point attempts a game, uh, which I don't think is like out of the cards at all, teams are going to have to get to the point where they guard him out there. Otherwise, he's just hurting you too much. You know what I mean? Like You can't give up that volume of open threes to a guy that's knocking down that percentage and expect to have a cogent defense. Right, but... If you're the defense, you're also willing to give up the three, even if it is 30, you know, 37, 38%, because it's not going to be a wide open when you're still going to have a guy running at him, hopefully under control. Um, and, like, you, you'd rather give up the three than give up someone like him, you know, attacking the paint and potentially getting, you know, the finish and one. Um, but but the problem but, with that is that a lot of guys that are going to be closing out on Obi at the four and the five, fours are better at this now because teams have obviously started playing smaller. But a lot of the guys that are going to be guarding Obi are not going to be particularly comfortable with that like short choppy step quickness that you need to bring. Because if you play him at the five, he's going to be guarded by centers and that's going to be really hard. So I actually don't think I actually think that his skill set is going to lend itself to either getting open threes or to getting easier closeouts. That's kind of the nature of the mismatch ability that he has. But then he's going to give it back on defense if he's playing the five. So, which then ties back to the whole thing of like, you know, as great as he can potentially be on offense. And I think he is a legitimately very, very good offensive player. Um, I, I just have concerns on defense because if you play him at the four, he's potentially chasing guys not you know obviously Davis Bertans is going to kill everyone off screens um but he's going to be playing against more mobile 
guys who can take him off the bounce. And Toppin's hips are not particularly fluid, I think. Right. Um, which, you know, that's going to hurt him in every aspect in space. And then if you're playing him at the five, his center of gravity is really bad. And, like, at least with him, I don't really think it's something he can improve that much. You know, you can improve leverage, and with the MBA, you can you can get away with, you know, the post-up rules are different. So you can be more physical. You can use both hands or the hand and the forearm. Um, but even if he's able to get, you know, his leg underneath the post-up players, um, the, the glutes and the hamstrings, he's still going to be able to be moved. And, like, you know, he, he's that weird four and a half that, people didn't like with Marvin Bagley, only I think Bagley moves better. Um, obviously, Toppin's a better offensive player than Bagley was, but specifically on defense, I think they have similar concerns. So I agree with you that I think they have similar concerns. I think that Toppin showed more flashes on defense than what Bagley did at Duke. Uh, and honestly, like I made the same case about Bagley. Like I thought that he would kind of figure things out on defense. Uh, he is not. He's pretty bad on defense so far. But I still have some vague hope given the fact that he's like 21 years old and uh, never had any sort of accountability defensively. I think Toppin at least has had like the accountability instilled in him from a younger age defensively to where I actually think he knows what to do. Uh, Like you watch him rotate over from the weak side. I don't think he's, I think he makes pretty good choices in terms of what shots to go for and what shots not to. Uh, The problem is again, you're right about the center of gravity that guys can kind of like push him around a little bit too much. Now, in regard to the hip flexibility, I go back and forth because I think that like I was one of the first people to bring this up. Like after I saw him at Nike basketball Academy, um, I think you were too, honestly. Um, he, he struggles to drop his hips uh, and he really has to load up in order to drop his hips. And that extra split second you have to take to load up often ends up with guys beating you. Having said that, why I'm higher on Toppin defensively than I am on Marvin Bagley or someone like that is I kind of subscribe to this theory that if you're a high IQ offensive basketball player and you know what to do on offense and you've shown flashes in terms of knowing what to do on defense, I think that you can figure it out in a way to where you're not a total liability on defense, especially if your offensive role, because I think that like, I see, I don't see Obi as like a centerpiece offensively. I see him as, you know, a second option on a good team, a third option on a good team. I think that he can figure it out to where he is not the centerpiece of the defense, but he's not a liability given just the incredible recovery speed, leaping ability, uh, ability to contest uh, from behind that he has once he turns and runs. Uh, a lot of the coaches that I've talked to that played him this year felt like, to be honest, he kind of just went for the turn and chase uh, as opposed to even really trying to sit down. Uh, If you really, I think, get him in a situation where he has to try and sit down, I'm intrigued with what the upside is there. At least I'm intrigued by the chance that there's upside there. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, I just want to let you know, I I still have hope in Bagley also, so you're not alone. Um, I'm not alone. there with you. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Here's the problem with Marvin before we uh, get to Obi and defensive uh, upside here. Uh, The Kings need to stop calling him a fucking three. They need to stop pretending that this guy is a positionless basketball player. I said this on the last podcast. I'm sorry, Kings fans. They need to stop pretending this game. Marvin Bagley is a four or five big man that – your best bet on getting the most out of him is playing him at the five and just letting him feast against guys, uh, or at least trying to feast against guys. End rant. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so so Toppin, so on the IQ part, completely agree. Um, I think unless if you have negative athletic attributes or size attributes, then, like, if you're if you're an incredibly gifted offensive player who sees the court, you know, sees everything before it happens, chances are you can be at least – a non-negative on defense because you're, in theory, you know, as smart or close to as smart on defense as you are on offense. Um, so, you know, specifically with someone like Trey, Trey is someone who is incredibly gifted on offense, but he is very small. And right. I think, you know, he only try a little bit harder on defense, but he is always going to be small. So that's preventing him from being anything close to a, you know, a non-negative defender. Um, but then someone like LaMelo, LaMelo, he has good size for point guard. He is shown flashes on defense, as you know, you were saying that you require. And again, I agree. And he's so gifted offensively that I think there's 
a reasonable path to him getting to that non-negative, um, potentially positive defensive player. Not like, you know, Drew Holiday or anything like that, but I don't really think he'd have to be. But with Toppin, I think Toppin fits more in the Trey category than LaMelo because I just don't trust the hips. Um, like, you know, you, you can make good reads, but if, you if you know, it, like the amount of pick and rolls Utah runs. Like if you're getting Toppin in two pick and rolls every possession – is he really going to be able to stop even, like, you know, 50% of them? Probably not. Um, or at least, like, I don't think so. And I think, you know, if, if you're switching with him, then he's completely cooked there. But even, like, the rotations, he, he did make some nice ones. I'm not, I'm not you know, going to say he didn't. But um, from the numbers that I had, you know, he allowed almost 50% of shots made in the paint. It's not from Synergy. It's not, like, that crap. It's this is still not reliable, but it makes Synergy, you know, look, like, completely irrelevant. Um, so, you know, perspective last year, Brandon Clark, I think was at 25 or 26% on here. And Clark was an all time, like IQ guy on defense, but yeah, Brandon Clark's that, a freak show. Yeah. Um, like I gap though, that, that worries me. Um, and you know, topping, you know, if he is stepping up against someone who's driving, I think, you know, he can get bumped off the spot. Um, like I don't know. I, I don't really think that the rotations have been consistent enough to outweigh the lack of hip flexibility. And I mean, yeah, the turning chase, you know, there's that. But when you're trying to do that or, you know, whatever scheme you're playing in in the NBA against bigger and better athletes, more skilled guys, the room for error is much smaller. Yep. Um, no, he, he can't I, live off of turning and chasing in the NBA. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely just not something that can happen. I just think that oftentimes he made the decision to do that in college ahead of time. Like he made just a predetermined read. Like, okay, this guy's probably going to get by me. I'm just going to try and turn and chase and go. Um, that makes yeah. me wonder if we don't necessarily have a great gauge for how bad his hips are. Like I've seen well, him, funny. but like for me, like it's, it's like the drop that struggles that he struggles with more than anything. Like if you get him like in a straight line laterally going side to side, I actually don't think he's a disaster there either. I think it's mostly just the hip in the hip drop. I think it's lateral too, though. And something that I've noticed a lot, I mean, just kind of in general is you know, when you're young, you're taught to slide because when you're, when you're sliding, your balance is much more in control and your weight's not moving everywhere. Um, from what I remember, Toppin, he was constantly turning his hips. And I think when you tie, like, not turning, excuse me, uh, crossing his feet. And I think when you tie that into the high center of gravity, you know, if you cross it, you know, even just like a little bit too much while you're trying to recover, um, he, he's going to be, you know, like four feet away. You know, like if you imagine him trying to guard Kemba or even like a non-Kemba shifty point guard, um, the second the ball handler stops, Toppin's his center of gravity is just going to keep taking him away. Right. And I don't think his, I don't think he's really quick laterally on top of that. Um, I just think he has like, I think he's going to have issues. Um, and he's more sure, of a like, run and he, jump athlete for sure. Like no yeah. question. Yeah. So then you know, I guess you try to play him off ball and try to, you know, improve the weak side rotations and stuff like that. But then you're having him guard the perimeter more, I think, because usually the guys who are playing off-ball and defense are the guys who are guarding the shooters and whatnot. Um, I don't know. I just it, it doesn't make me feel – I'm not comfortable with saying that Toppin's going to be anything but a negative defender. Um, you know, go back to John Collins, you know, as you said in the tweet chain. Um, his defense that didn't prove. It definitely did. Like, there's no denying that. But he's also much more fluid of an athlete. Um like IQ, I think Toppin's better there, so that's going to definitely make up for some of the difference, um, potential difference. But there are just so many potential avenues, I think, for a defensive disaster um, that you know. I guess I'd have to you know see him in a in an NBA context before I'm fully fully comfortable saying he can guard in the NBA. Yeah, behind the eight ball. Yeah, I think that that's a much more reasonable way to put it. And I actually do agree with that. I think he is behind the eight ball as a defender. I just do think that there is more upside because the other thing about this is that like, look, I don't mean to disparage Dayton. Dayton had a great season this year, but like it's not exactly breaking news that like an A-10's like strength and conditioning 
program isn't going to be up to the standard of an NBA strength and conditioning program. And frankly, like the trainers that CAA hooks Obi Toppin up with in terms of like a strength and conditioning program, these guys' bodies often end up changing. Like John Collins, uh, if I remember correctly, was like kind of a thick dude whenever he even got to Wake Forest and took off some weight, continued to add some quickness and better footwork. And then as even as he got to the NBA, it took him some time to get better. I think that we often underrate the way that these guys' bodies change as well uh, whenever they get to the NBA. Uh, someone like Obi Toppin, like if you told me that, you know, the issues in terms of center of gravity improved uh, – slightly to the point where he can actually like embrace contact coming over from the weak side um, and stay vertical while doing it uh, and using that like latent explosiveness athletically like that outcome wouldn't stun me where I'm mostly excited is that we already have such a great starting point with him offensively. Uh, if you can even add a little bit defensively to the point where he's an average defender, like this guy is worth taking very high in this draft. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of projection, though, obviously. It's a lot of projection. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like, you know, Collins was younger. The first person, actually, when you mentioned, you know, the biomechanic stuff, I thought it was Miles Turner because yep. like, remember the way he was running before the draft? Yeah, I wrote, um, like, a big thing on it at the time, so yeah. Yeah, like, that was, that was you know, less than ideal. Um, but even, I, even someone like Pascal Siakam has mm -hmm. changed pretty substantially uh, as an athlete since he's gotten to the NBA. Like, I think that when he was at New Mexico State, frankly, he was even like, I don't want to say stiff, but in comparison to where he is now, certainly was pretty stiff, right? Like, there are a lot of examples of these guys' bodies kind of changing in a way that I'm still trying to wrap my head around a little bit, even as an evaluator. Like, I'm still trying to, you know, learn as much as I can about biomechanics, um, I'm certainly not an expert on it, but I, I think that trying to figure out how a guy's body is going to change in time is really, really, really important. Yeah, um, and, you know, that's that's the job that the guys at P3, you know, what yeah. they're doing. Um, like, I, you know, I went to law school. I, I did not study biomechanics. I had an internship like a bunch of years ago, um, you know, with in sports medicine and, you know, improving athleticism, but like it's a crapshoot and you're definitely right with that. They can improve. It's, it's like, how much are you willing to bet on that? Right. And like, it, I don't it, gamble at all. <laughs> so I'm the <laughs> wrong person to ask. Um, but like, I think in the case of scary, I think in the case of Obi, the reason that I'm willing to bet on it a little bit more is because there already is such a high level offensive upside. Like, if Obi was to get to the point where he was even a slightly above average defender, which is asking a lot from where he is now. And like you say that, you know, because his effort level at Dayton defensively, just due to the offensive role that he had to play, just waned, right? Um, there, there are cases for why Obi was bad defensively contextually. And there are cases like just biomechanically in terms of like what he can and can't do right now. But if he gets to the point where he's even like a slight, like, if he gets to the point where he's like a net uh, zero defensively, and by net zero, I mean not negative I mean, it's a win, yeah. He's, I mean, he's a top five pick in this draft, like no question, I think. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. Um, um, and like yeah. it comes down to would I rather have that guy who I think can be like a genuine offensive star in the NBA and then work on the defense, or would I rather have a – Tyrese Halliburton, who I also really like and have at number five on my board right now. But, you know, what is the upside with Tyrese Halliburton? What is the upside? Yeah, I mean, like, I think he's like a secondary ball handler, not really a true point yeah. guard. Halley, he scares me a lot. Like, he's he's another, like, he's an incredibly gifted IQ guy. Like, the plays right. that he, you know, like, like you know, the, the offensive reads he makes are awesome. But, like, the defense stuff, like, he's he's doing the stuff that he does on offense on defense. Um, yep. And, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed watching defense more. You know, Marcus Smart's one of my favorite players in basketball for that reason. So seeing guys do that on defense, it always excites me. But Halliburton worries me because, though I agree, he's definitely not, you know, a primary point guard. If you're running him off the line, he's going to do what exactly? Because he's not taking pull-up jump shots comfortably. And I don't really think his form is conducive to even projecting that on some half, you know, healthy level. and. Like he he's 150 pounds. Like I I know it says 178 or whatever he's listed as. Like he is 
incredibly skinny, and he is like the the paint puts the fear of God in him. It seems like like he settled for so many floaters from just outside. Um, does not take contact well, so I feel like you know with him if you're if you're running him off the line, I think you'll have to because regardless of you know the wonky form, he still hit it at forty whatever two percent on some insane. Um, volume the last two years and like there were deep threes too so yeah. no you, have, you have to run him off the line you have to run him off yeah the line. um i just worry about you know the in-between game and what's going to happen when he is run off the line and he'll definitely make the reads but you know if the digs and drop and if the defense is staying home on their man which i think they will specifically with halliburton like what's he going to do yeah i think the big key is the floater uh basically yep. was taking you know, one floater a game, making them at 45%. Uh, for a 19-year-old, that's a really good number, and I think that's actually pretty projectable uh, just in regard to what his touch is overall. Uh, I think that, like, we can agree that even though we have very real concerns about the short, the shot form in terms of who his um, who he is as a lead guard and as a pull-up threat, uh, he definitely has very real touch, and he's going to be able to uh, – knock down floaters, I think, at a pretty high level, and knock down shots off the catch at a pretty high level. The uh, The biggest yeah. thing that worries me is, like, the, the propensity to jump pass, to be honest. Like, he leaves his feet a ton. <laughs> like, it's it, – yeah. I don't know why he does it. And, like, he doesn't do it around the basket. He does it, like, on the perimeter oftentimes. And he's really he good at – Yeah, he just doesn't have to do that. Like, that shit – doesn't really fly at the next level. He's a great live dribble passer without leaving his feet. Like, I don't think that he, he has to get rid of that habit. But, you know, you mentioned the frame. I actually think the frame is going to age pretty well. Like, he I, is, so I don't think I don't think he'll stay 180 pounds his entire life. I just think that he will stay skinny. Like, he's not getting to – if he breaks 200, I'd be, I guess, a little bit shocked. Uh, 205. Like, that's that, – I think that he's going to – I think he's going to get to like 200. He has really big shoulders uh, in a way that I think is going to be pretty conducive to putting on weight. Like he is, like his shoulders are actually kind of like wide out there, um, despite the fact that he does have that like incredibly skinny frame. Like it's not a or like skinny torso um, and skinny legs. The torso is yeah. The torso and the legs are what makes me think that like if you add too much, then it's going to be like he's moving in mud. Or, Maybe not to that extent, but he's going to lose a lot of, or potentially a lot of, you know, what would make him special off the, uh, you know, just like straight line speed. I think that would that would go down. It could, yeah, it very well could. But I also don't know that because he has like such intelligence with change of pace, I don't know that I'm as concerned about him losing as much explosiveness as I am someone else. You know, like he's he's not someone that's going to get by especially given the fact that I see him as a secondary playmaker and see him as someone who's going to be trying to take advantage of defenders that are slightly out of position and have to close out on him hard because he is such a good shooter off the catch. Uh, I, I'm not quite as worried about him losing like just a touch of speed and quickness. I'm more worried about him being able to embrace contact in a way. Like I, I would be comfortable adding weight to him uh, as a player, assuming that he would – that the good with the weight would outweigh the bad of maybe even losing a little bit of speed. And I, honestly, like, I don't think it's a guarantee that he would lose speed given how good uh, strength and conditioning uh, coaches and specialists are in the NBA. Yeah. I mean, you can be as good as like, you can, you can be the best of the best, but sometimes frames just can't handle the weight. Um, sometimes too much is, is just too much. And while you can definitely minimize it, I think at a certain point, the would be good weight, becomes bad and you know Halliburton is definitely context dependent also because how many teams run enough pick and rolls to where he's constantly attacking swinging defenses like if I had to pick like so Utah Utah is my number one example for that like he is a perfect fit there just because of the amount of times they're running pick and rolls and like the pick and roll swings then you have Joe Ingles and you know whoever it is on the other side running it um He's someone who I think would fit there, but then, you know, who knows, I guess, is going to be coaching the Knicks, but just kind of given their roster personnel, it doesn't really make sense. Like, I don't really see a fit because there's no threat on ball to draw the defense, to collapse it, to then force the weak side stuff. So, you know, you're going to need someone who can get into the paint, or you're going to need an offense that can actually get it so he's 
attacking a moving defense. And if he's not doing that, and if he's not in that system, it's going to be rough, or it could potentially be rough. Yeah, to me, the interesting fit based off of roster construction right now is Detroit. Uh, Derek Rose, the one thing that he does really, really well right now is collapse yep. the defense Collapses. still. Um, he'd be, I think Halliburton would fit really, really well next to Derek Rose. I honestly think he'd fit pretty well next to Luke Kennard, Kennard. too, to be honest. Yeah, that's, I actually thought that's where you were going. And then when you said Rose, I'm like, yeah, that also makes sense. But yeah, yeah I'm a Kennard fan. Yeah, they, they both do it really, really well. Um, that yeah. I actually put him to Detroit in my most recent mock draft. And uh, I, the more I think about that fit, the more I like it. Honestly, his fit in Cleveland is really good too. Like you put him next to one of those two guards, <laughs> I would <laughs> personally put him next to Colin uh, as opposed to Darius. But mm-hmm. uh, you put him next to Colin Sexton. Colin is good at collapsing a defense, and I think that Tyrese would be able to take on tougher defensive assignments. Um, well, then, he, the, so I guess I want to touch on the defense then. Um, so you think that he'll be able to get up to two hundred? So we'll say he gets it to two hundred. Um, sure. Do you think he he's someone who will be targeted because I think his as, so he's incredibly smart. Yes. I think. I think. I think like, the answer is yes to this. Okay. Yeah. Like I think. As good I mean, as teams he did it in college, team by the defense. way. Like I've ta- I've talked yeah. to teams in college that were just like, yeah, we targeted him on defense because not because we thought he was a bad defender, but because we thought he had to conserve offensive energy and because he wasn't super strong on ball. Um, and frankly, we wanted to take his threat away off ball. Yeah. So. Exactly. You're taking the throw off ball, and then I'm also not a big believer in the footwork. I think he kind of – I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like a moves funny, I think. Um, he gets to where I think he has to go, but he's – you know, he gets killed by screens. I don't think his footwork getting around pick and rolls is good. I don't think he's particularly quick at the point of attack, but, you know, that's stuff that you can improve. But if you're putting him on ball and if you're targeting him to where he is the guy at the point of attack, it's – He's not off ball. He's not able to make those miraculous plays that he was making at Iowa State. So let me let me rephrase. I think he will get targeted early in his career. I think that there's if he puts on weight, it's really hard to go up against these guys that are like six foot five. If you're a smaller guard, like it's just they kind of I don't want to say that they swallow them up, um, but their length is like a very real impediment, especially if you can like embrace that long though. He's not. He's like six seven, six eight wingspan. Um, yeah, that shocked me when that came out. Yeah, no, it's all anticipation. His anticipation yeah. is just fucking off the charts, I think. Yeah. Um, his anticipation is so ridiculous, and I think that that does extend on ball. Like, I think he does a good job of anticipating what an offensive player is going to do, and I think he does a pretty good job of beating that player to the spot. The footwork stuff I do agree with, though. I think he is such a hard worker and, like, elite-level, elite like, character kid that wants this. Uh, I think he is going to figure out the footwork stuff to where he'll probably be okay. Yeah. I mean, if that happens, then he's going to be one hell of a defender because then you can't target him on, on ball. And then obviously off ball is where he'll make his money. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I think you're talking about a guy that is going to be a plus defender who can provide spacing and uh, great ball movement and playmaking. Like, it's like a perfect role player to me. Yeah, like, for the record, like, I do like Halliburton. I think the odds of him being a negative player are on either side of the ball are pretty close to zero. Um, it's just how much of a positive player can he be. Like, if he's in, if he's playing next to, you know, another, like a jumbo initiator or, you know, a primary initiator, he's going to have so much value. And then yep. if he's playing against, you know, if he's playing with someone on defense who can guard, um, you know, some stronger guys or, you know, better on-ball players, putting him off ball, awesome. Um like, I don't hate Halliburton anyway. I think he's absolutely going to be an impact player. Just, I just, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah. Um, the reason that I like him a little bit more than Killian Hayes is because I think he translates better to playing off ball. Would you, you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit. Would you agree with the fact that you think he is, uh, he is good enough or he is better than Killian Hayes playing off the ball? He's a better shooter. He's currently a better shooter um, than Killian. I think I think that might be as far as I'm willing to go right now, um, just because of the concerns. Like if you chase Halliburton off the line, you know he's he's kind of screwed. If you chase Killian off the line, he's not. Um, you know, See, I actually disagree with that. I don't so, think that Halliburton is screwed when you chase him off the line. 
So if you chase him off the lineup, the defense stays home. If we can agree that he's afraid of the paint, well, I guess then you're going with the floater. But the floater is not an efficient shot, regardless of how good. Like Chris Paul, well, Chris Paul is a bad example. Yeah, Trey Young is an example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like the, the floater has to be an above average shot or at least something that can potentially create another look if, you know, it does force the big out and then maybe there's going to be a weak side cutter on baseline or something like that. Um, yeah, like I, I, I think, think that there are there. enough ways to design an offense that once Halliburton does get into the paint, that like offenses can find a way to take advantage of his passing ability. Like it's not just upon him. He will draw defenders, I think, but even if he doesn't draw defenders, NBA offensive players are very, very smart to the point where I think they will find a way to take advantage of the fact as a cutter, um, you know, relocating, uh, you know, just from their current position. Like I actually think that there are enough ways that he can hurt teams uh, in those scenarios. Yeah. I mean, like even if they're cutting though, then assuming man is not, you know, just completely lost off ball, his defender or, you know, the guy who's cutting that defender will still be with him and you can relocate, but you know, this, I guess, you know, and what I'm projecting what will happen where the defense just stays with their man, the, you know, the potential holes, the potential cuts, the, you know, potential kickouts for three, you know, hammer actions, whatever, they might not be there. Um, well, here, here's the other thing, too. If you're just, like, saying that the center is going to stay home on Halliburton, Halliburton does have enough to, like, beat a center if he has the ball, like, 15 feet. I'm saying away the center's not going to come out. Like, I'm saying specifically, well, yeah. Yeah, I'm saying the center's not going to leave. Like, and drop. Like, you, you would, you'd ice them, you'd play them and drop every single time. And, you know, that's – or, like, well, that's just right, a hit roll. Even but if the guy's in drop, off, even if the guy's in drop, he's dropping what? Back to, like, let's even say, worst-case scenario, 10 to 12 feet, right? What? Like, so he's going to have the floater then? Like, like you're, you're buying the floater that much then to well, where you I'm think saying that he'll that, be able to beat the drop? I'm saying the center is going to be, like, at the very least paying attention to him. And, yeah, I'm buying the floater enough to where if it's at 40, let's say 45 to 47%, that's still, like, not a terrible shot in the half court. Like, that's still a .9, what? Let me do math. I can do math good, uh, 0. 0.92, <laughs> 0.94, you know, half court shot. It's not great, but it's not a like terrible, it's not a terrible outcome for the defense, but that's not a terrible outcome for the offense either. Especially like given the fact that teams are what, like, what are they at? Like 100 to 103 in the half court now. So then it goes to the defense and what they're willing to give up. And I think if you ask coaches, you know, if they'd rather give up a, what I anticipate to be, a semi-contested or a contested floater because I don't care who, who's taking the shot pretty much. It, there's going to be some sort of contest if it's from – I mean, there's going to be some sort of contest period. Right. Um, but the, the other part of this like, is, too, like we're talking about this purely in the playoffs, right? Like NBA teams, they do like good advanced scouting, but you know, mm-hmm. they're not changing their scheme based off of Tyrese Halliburton right. like every night in the regular season. Right, but I don't think you'd have to. Like I think it would just be it would just be telling them like specifically with him, and it would be pretty much the same scheme or what I you know what I think would be the same scheme for every team and how they would defend Halliburton. Um, it's not like, you know, yeah, yeah, like you know it's not like you're you know you're gonna overload the strong side or you know like whatever or like you know whatever scheme you want to put in there. I think it would just be stay home, stay back. If you need to give up a semi-contested floater or you know a semi-contested blood jump shot, much more reasonable than giving up even, you know, a contested three um, or a semi-contested three. Um, you know, it, it depends on what the uh, what the defense and what the coaches are willing to give. And, I, like, if I'm coaching, I'm much more willing to give up that contested whatever floater from 12 feet. Um, I, I definitely I am, too. I do agree yeah. with you on that. Um, all of this also is incumbent upon defenders to, like, actually do what they're supposed to do. In like, yeah, which you can't, <laughs> which you can't always account for, right? Like, yeah. and if yeah. they do leave, Halliburton is always going to hit the right pass, basically. So I kind of yeah. think that, yeah, you're right. That's how you defend it, but it's how you defend it in a perfect world when it's really hard to create those perfect conditions necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know? All yeah, I mean, if there's a mistake, if, if there's a mistake, he'll take advantage of it. Right. I just, I, I'm hoping. It's like I mean, split-second reaction. You know what I mean? Like, every time. Yeah. Split-second reaction. 
if a guy makes a slight mistake, Halliburton's split second, second reaction is better than everyone else's split second reaction almost. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just – I think maybe I trust defenses being a little bit more calm um, or, you know, overstrained in these kind of scenarios than they might be in reality. Um, but, yeah, like I, if there's any type of mistake, if they're off by half a second, then Halliburton's going to make them pay. Um, and the last thing that I want to talk to you about here is – Killian Hayes. Let's uh, let's let's just jump into him because I think that in many ways him and Halliburton are somewhat similar, insofar as they both are kind of comboy guards that don't have a crazy amount of burst, get by on change of pace, and then additionally, they are very strong hand dominant guys. Now there are I literally just wrote that down. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Um, Killian Hayes with the left hand, Tyrese with the right hand. Um, The one difference here is that Killian is a much better pull-up shooter. Tyrese is a much better catch-and-shoot guy. I think they are both very good defensively as well in a similar way. I think that the reason that I like Tyrese a little bit more is I think that Tyrese is an elite-level catch-and-shoot guy. Like I I feel good about him being a 40% catch-and-shoot guy, basically. With Killian, he has a long way to go as a catch-and-shoot guy to where – I'm not saying that I don't think he can get there at some point. I think it's a pretty good ways away, though, from him being able to do that. And given the fact that I have some concerns about him being explosive enough for the NBA level to be a high-level lead guard, I like the fact that I can trust Halliburton to play off-ball a little bit more and be just a little bit more effective at it. Um. So, yeah, I mean... Halliburton's definitely the better shooter right now. I think there's, I don't think there's any argument otherwise. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say that given where he is now, he will likely continue to be one so long before him translates. And, you know, if he's not shooting directly on the line, the fact that he can shoot five feet behind it, six feet behind it, that's, you know, it's an awesome way to space the floor. Right. Um, we should talk about, too, the fact Tyrese does have a very elongated windup, too. Like, it's... It's a shot that takes a while yeah. to get off, which is a little bit concerning. Yep. Um, I agree that they're, you know, they're both maybe not full-on uh, engine guards or, you know, lead guards. However, I also think Killian is, is much further ahead if you wanted to give him the keys. And I think that just having that option, I think that's a, that adds a lot of value. Um, you know, you're not you're not hiding him off ball or just, you know, you're not even hiding Halliburton off ball because you want him off ball. Um, but, you know, you're able to just run and pick and roll with him and like, sure, you know, he's going left and he's going to attack the basket or he's going to have a step back or he's going right and he's they're just going to have, you know, a drop off or, you know, a kick out to the perimeter with his left hand because he can't pass with his right or he'll have a step back because um, he's not attacking with his right. But just the fact that he can run half-court offense on ball I think that that is very helpful. And, you know, I, I don't think the shot's going to stay as bad as it is now. Um, I trust the tuck way too much. You know, he's a great free throw shooter. Um, I think with him specifically, and it's weird because I feel like most guys, you know, most guys, I feel like it's easier to fix your off-ball catch-and-shoot footwork than it is on-ball. And I feel like specifically with him, given how his footwork on-ball is perfect, just from the balance to – you know, they release everything with the sidestep, step backs. Um, I trust that. And because I trust him developing the footwork, he's, you know, 18 point whatever, seven or nine, whatever it is years old, I think the shooting will come. So then when that comes, if you are playing him off ball, if you chase him off the line or assuming he's able to get enough attention to get chased off the line, he's attacked the rim because he is strong enough to do that. Um, he's comfortable enough pulling up off the bounce. And then on D, I think Halliburton has the edge off ball. Um, I just think Halliburton's a special special, special off-ball defender. But yep. Killian, I think, is also a good off-ball defender. I think yep. Killian has the edge at the point of attack. And I think I the agree. fact that he's, you know, he's 18 and change, almost 19. Um, he's pretty strong for his age, too. He's almost 200 pounds or 200 pounds, 205, whatever he is. Um, he's a little thicker. I think that also gives him a little bit more potential versatility on defense where he's not, you know, you're, you're not looking to hide him necessarily on some bulkier guards. Um, you're obviously not switching because you know i don't think he's that strong but you know in a pinch who would i feel more comfortable switching with halliburton or killian i'd much more comfortable switching with uh, killian um yeah so with let's kind of talk this through so on the defensive side i agree with you 
basically across the board. I do think Killian's a better on-ball defender. I will say in terms of, I think I trust Tyrese to add a bit more strength and I, I think I trust Tyrese's frame to add better than I do Killian. Killian, you know, as I'm sure you've seen throughout the course of his career, like Killian was a very early physical developer. Like he mm. was, you know, from the time he was like six foot four, he was, or from the time he was like 14 or 15, he was like six foot four, 195 to 200 pounds. Right. Like he was, he was a big dude that could kind of, I don't want to say bully, but like he was stronger and had enough speed to get to angles a little bit quicker than what everyone else did uh, in his age group. That's why I was actually quite a bit lower on him in the preseason was because I think this is an early developer who doesn't really shoot it. And, you know, I think people are starting to catch up to him a little bit. And this year he was really good. He was really, really good in Germany. Um, You know, showcased some improvement as a shooter off the bounce. Uh, Really showcased, I thought, some improvement as a ball handler uh, in the way that he changes paces. And uh, he always has done that. But the fact that he did it against pro-level competition and really had to adjust on the fly, especially after some very turnover-heavy games early in his season, I thought was really, really impressive to me. Now, on offense, where I worry about Killian on the ball is I don't know that I trust him enough as a lead guard to get separation uh, and and to get separation consistently enough. Um, You know, we can talk about change of pace as much as we want, right? But other than Stephen Curry in today's NBA, right? Um, And I guess maybe you can bring up Ricky Rubio uh, as someone who gets by on change of pace, but I don't think that like Ricky is necessarily a high level um, starting point guard in the NBA. He's probably you know, slightly below league average, right? Um, which super high level point guards are not like wildly explosive athletes that aren't also super elite level shooters um, or aren't super elite level shooters. Like James Harden is one of the best shooters like, in NBA history, basically. Trey Young is one of the best shooters in NBA history and I think is considerably quicker than Killian Hayes. Um, you know, Luka Doncic is four inches taller than Killian Hayes. Damian Lillard is a much better athlete. Uh, I think Kyle Lowry's a better athlete, to be frank. Um, you know, Devontae Graham is different, but Devontae is like a super elite level shooter and Kyle Lowry's also an elite level shooter from distance. Um, Russell Westbrook, crazy athlete. Drew Holiday, really ridiculous athlete. Uh, John Morant, ridiculous athlete. Chris Paul. I don't think Drew's. I love Drew. I, I don't think Drew's an elite athlete though. He's he's a better athlete than, than Killian Hayes uh, by Killian, a considerable yeah. portion. Yeah, sorry, it, you're right. Like maybe misspoke on Drew Holiday being elite level athlete, but you know a tier and a half above Killian Hayes is an athlete, right? Okay. Um, John Morant, crazy athlete. Chris Paul, maybe the smartest basketball player that has ever walked earth. And maybe has like the best handle of any athlete and most functional handle of any NBA player in history. Like it's just hard to find these high level guards that either don't have crazy change of pace mixed with crazy change of direction in terms of fluidity off the bounce or crazy shooting ability or, you know, just it's hard, I think, to be a guy who just gets by off of change of pace with one hand on the ball. And that's where Killian is right now. Killian's also going to turn 19, like right before the draft. So there is still a lot of time, but I worry that he is not going to be explosive enough to consistently play on the ball and a good, good enough and versatile enough ball handler to play consistently on the ball. So I think part of like, I I don't think he's necessarily a full-time one. Like I, I don't, think he can really run an offense the entire time I think if you're doing that you're kind of setting yourself up for you know mediocrity I guess and like I like Killian a lot I just don't really think he can do it but I think just having that ability where in the half court you can play him on ball you can play him off ball so you know that that, that's a plus so Um, so if you're playing him off ball though Especially early in his career, right? Yeah, I mean, this is with the projection that I think he will be able to shoot. It's like the footwork and the touch. So if none of that happens, 
like you can throw everything out I'm saying everything I'm saying out the window. Um, but assuming that comes, he can have that dual threat where he's the same stationary catch and shoot guy as Halliburton is. Um, he can attack closeouts. I think he'd attack closeouts better than Halliburton. Um, but I just like having that ability to where in the half court, if you want to play, play him in a lineup instead of just having him as a shooting guard next to another point guard or, you know, two whatever, two guards, if you want to play him as the lead guard and then just have spaces around him, you can do that. Um, so it's not necessarily a point guard who I, I would say, you know, who I would compare him to. It's someone who can play on and off ball. So I'm thinking of potentially someone like Brogdon. Um, he's not a great athlete. He's definitely much stronger. Um, yeah. But he also came in older. Um, you know, Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell is much more explosive vertically, but he's he's shifty. I wouldn't say he's, you know, quick in tight places. Um, Dragic has always gotten by just being shiftier than guys and being able to piece got, piece moves together while using his left hand because his right is not as good as his left. Um, the, the comp is Brogdon, who, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. Like, that's that's what you're hoping to get out of Killian Hayes. Yeah. He's like a Malcolm Brogdon type. Um, yeah. Honestly, I do think the Killian's probably even a little bit more athletic than Malcolm, um, mm-hmm. but he not nearly as... Yeah, and honestly, I don't think he's going to get the strength and, like, hand mm-hmm. size that Malcolm has. Like, Malcolm just keeps the ball on a string and keeps guys yeah. away from him just because, like, for his position, Malcolm might be – Malcolm and, like, James Harden are, like, two of the strongest point guards in the league, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know that that's projectable with Killian Hayes necessarily. I think that that's your I, hope, but to me that's why I have more – I have Killian Hayes more at, like, nine – like, eight or nine than I do – at number three or so. Cause like, if you're asking me, like I probably, that's a good question. Would I rather have John Collins or Malcolm Brogdon? I mean, I, I'd rather have Brogdon. Th- man, that's hard. Cause I do really care about positional scarcity and do really care about, Oh man. I like how you stumped yourself with this question too. I did. I did stump <laughs> myself a little bit because I think that like having a guy that is as just so ridiculously explosive offensively as as Collins is, it gives you such a ridiculous marginal advantage that Brogdon doesn't give you, but it's much easier to formulate lineups around Brogdon. Like, that's the advantage if you think Killian Hayes is going to shoot. The ability Mm -hmm. to formulate lineups around him that have shooting and defense and um, playmaking is very valuable. But the key here is the shot, and if the shot doesn't come along, what is the floor outcome for you with Killian Hayes if the shot doesn't come? Because that's what worries me more than anything. I mean, I don't have a comp for that. Um, is it like smaller? Yeah, Joe Ingles can shoot. Um, I, I don't really have, like, I think the problem, the reason I don't have a comp for that, is it like Bruce Brown? I mean, I It's I like something so. like, think, it's like something in that realm. Yeah, like it's definitely not some super high level point guard. Um yeah, I mean, you know, the floor is definitely lower. Yeah. Just because the shooting isn't there, but I like shooting. You know, we have you know Aaron Bain shooting threes. You have well Embiid. I always thought was going to shoot. Um, right. You know, no, you're right. So, like shooting it's so improves. much easier to yeah. So if the guy, if the player has everything that I want besides shooting, or if the guy has many things I want besides shooting, and shooting is you know a piece of the puzzle that can then bring out other parts of the game. Um, and make other parts of the game shine, then that's something I would roll the dice on. Um, yeah. And if if he didn't have the footwork he had on ball, I might doubt a little bit better. Uh, sorry, I might doubt a little bit more. Um, if he didn't have the touch and the paint, if he didn't have the free throw percentage, like yeah, uh, the form I don't think is bad either. Um, I, I think it's I think it's a safe bet that you know he doesn't have to reach forty percent. You know, again, he won't reach Halliburton's probably volume or um, or percentage, but he has to be respectable enough to where he can add off the bounce, and I think he'll get there. So I think that I'll just, like, kind of close the loop on this conversation because I, I want to uh, get you out of here and get this podcast out within, uh, you know, 70 minutes for the list, for the listeners after the two-hour extravaganza that Dufour and I did on Tuesday. Um, I think that what I would say is with a guy that I don't think is really going to be a star, like, I, I – do you think that Killian Hayes is going to be a, like a star level player? No, uh, but I think I think well, star as in like potential all star. If he gets drafted to the next, I, I think he could be an all star because of the voting. But I don't think he's going to be right. some super high impact player. I think he'll be a positive impact player um, with positional versatility, and I like that. I think that this is kind of this kind of goes back to why I would take Halliburton over Hayes. 
And it's because on these guys that I don't see as having like crazy star impact upside, I would rather have the guy that I feel certain or at least with relative certainty is going to be like a positive player for me. Um, with Hayes, I feel good that he's going to be a really good player. Like I feel good that, you know, I have him in the top 10. Like I, I feel like he's going to be a very useful piece for all of the reasons that we've talked about, but I just don't quite have that certainty on the jump shot. And if the jump shot doesn't fall, things become hairy very quickly for him. Yeah. I mean, then you're just kind of betting on everything else coming together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it, it gets, I, I, I try to think about upside and downside outcomes in a pretty substantial way. Uh, Spencer, please uh, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what you've got going on. Um, well, first, thank you for having me. Uh, this is great. Um, this is a lot of fun. Um, but, yeah, I'm on Twitter, at SK Perlman. Uh, you can find my stuff at the Stepien. Um, if you have time to read scouting reports on some guys, definitely check those out. And I'm usually putting videos out, um, but the edits have kind of taken a step back recently. But, yeah, Twitter at SK Perlman, and my stuff is at the Stepien. Spencer does a great job. Go uh, follow what he's doing over there. Uh, his scouting reports really are very good. Obviously, this is why you know people like the Suns and like uh, you know Seth Cohen's agency decided to you know hire and consult with him because he is very detail oriented and very smart, as I'm sure that you could tell from this conversation. This has been the Game Theory Podcast on Friday. I do have a big you know blowout coaches poll series thing coming on Obi Toppin. So. If you are looking forward to that, you're going to get it on Friday. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.